0: Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession.
1: Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal recruiting and advisory services. I'm Mark Iacono, your host. I'm a managing director in Major Lindsay's Transform Advisory Services practice. And I have a great guest lined up today, Chris Parsons from Herbert Smith Freehills, the chairman of the India practice and a mental health champion. Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you to tell the audience a little bit about your background and and, and why you're such a compelling guest, because we're thrilled to have you.
0: That's very sweet, Mark. Thanks very much. So my background is, is that I've been a little bit boring In the sense that I've just been at one law firm. I've just been at Herbert Smith uh, and then Herbert Smith Freehills and um, I've now been there for 35 years and I've um, And I've been fortunate to be based in uh, London and then I spent some time on qualification in Hong Kong, which was pretty magical and then later I went to Singapore. I spent some time working in Italy as well. Uh, and then more recently, I, um, I, I've i been focused on India, which is why I chair the firm's India practice. And I've been having this um, slightly unusual peripatetic job of spending two weeks in India on the ground and then flying back to the UK and mainly working from home. And the reason for that is because um, foreign law firms are not allowed to open an office in India uh but we are allowed to fly in and fly out so i spend time with um indian lawyers with clients with contacts with a broad range of people and india has become a very special place to me and it's become my i guess my second home and it's unquestionably be been the happiest part of my career
1: well thank you for the for the introduction and the overview i have to say uh roughly 10 years ago, I went to India on business. I was there for 10 days and I was totally enthralled. It was life changing to see, to be that far away from family and friends and to see the the, uh, entirely different part of the world and culture, it was was really um, amazing. So I can see why you've fallen in love with India.
0: And of course, as I mentioned to you when we had our pre-chat a few days ago, Mark, I, um, I'm in the process or was in the process of taking my second sabbatical and, um, and, and as part of that um, I have not long returned from uh, a cycling adventure which took me from the very southernmost tip of India um, a place called Kanyakumari, and I cycled up right through the length of India taking in places like Bangalore, Hyderabad Um, Varanasi, uh, Lucknow, uh, Ludhiana, Delhi and then right up to Jammu and Kashmir, the very northernmost state of India Um, and I did that for charity so I cycled a little over 4,000 kilometers in 41 days and was able to raise um, $320,000 as a result of uh, enormous generosity from people that I know around the world. And that money will be used, and I've no doubt, will be even more important in India at this difficult time um, for widows and their children in in Jammu and Kashmir. So um, uh, that was a wonderful thing to have done, uh, and it's great to be back safe and sound in the UK now.
1: That is a breathtaking um, act of physical commitment charitable will um, and, it, and when you told me that I was really moved by just how uh, successful it was and how gratifying it might must have been. So tell me, under your title, which is um, very impressive, uh, Chairman India Practice, you have another title or another um, mantra, if you will, called Mental Health Champion. Yeah. Um, not many um, high-ranking <laughs> Leaders in law firms have that after their um, their former law firm position. So tell me a little bit about why that popped up there.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. So look, um, about um, three or four years ago, um, the Lord Mayor of the City of London was encouraging um, people within organisations in the City of London to ask him. Um, people who worked for their firms to record short, short messages basically and those messages um, and those videos were called This Is Me and it was all to do with um, getting people to start talking about the really important issue of mental wellbeing, um, and clearly with the city and the pressures that arise in the city being a good place to encourage that in in the first instance in in the uk and i was approached by our then head of diversity because i think he sort of picked up on the grapevine that maybe there was a bit more to my story than just being a lawyer and and he said look chris would you be happy to be one of the first couple of people to record a video and um and so i i Told something of my story at that time, and that was shared um, around the 6,000 members of HSF. And um, I had a, a really super response to being willing to be vulnerable and to talk about my challenges. And um, as a result of that, I thought, look, this is clearly something that um, has resonated with people um i should do more uh, and it and it feels um and over time increasingly has felt a bit like a calling and um so you know along with my role in india this is unquestionably one of the things that is most important to me and i've um spent an increasing amount of time focused on not only trying to help the firm with mental health issues, but also more broadly and I um, have been fortunate to speak in many places around the world um, about my story and about um, something I've learned around best practice and also to share my sort of personal tips and things. So that's really how I I was introduced to it and and how it took off. When
1: you recorded the the video, and it was released to 6000 people were you nervous did you know what to anticipate in terms of reaction or or were you surprised
0: um i i wasn't nervous i felt like it just felt like the right thing to do and particularly at, at, at that time it felt like we were on the cusp of of a change in in attitude or at least we needed to be on the cusp, the cusp of a change um the person who was actually more nervous was my wife and she you know essentially said look you know once you've told your story once it's out there you know you can't you can't untell it and so she was a little bit nervous about what it might do for me and my career and i think you know rightly she was a little bit nervous about you know, my kids, you know, I've got four kids, and, you know, what What would they say? So they knew something of my story, but they didn't know um, perhaps as much as I was happy to reveal on that video and, and what I've revealed since. So I, actually, I was pretty chilled about it, but I needed to take account of my, my wife's views.
1: You know, that's not an uncommon um, dilemma that people that choose to tell their story have you know from personal experience my willingness to tell a story in in my family's reticence is is very much the same and for very much the same reasons and i think it's for a lot of people and it's a protective mechanism really um, because they care about you and they care about how you might thrive or survive once you're out there because once you tell your story it's it's there so why don't you start and tell your story
0: yeah, we're in a good segue to hear that story. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so my story, if, if I sort of, if I give you the headlines and then I'll give you the details. So the headlines, I guess, are that um, it's a story around stress, anxiety, and depression, and but with a very important um, additional element, which was that, that in order to try and um, self-medicate, those issues, I I started drinking and and um, drinking heavily, and so my story also is a story of alcoholism, and um, you know fortunately in abeyance at the moment, although I have had some relapses, um, and and so it, it was um, a sort of package of, of of mental health type issues, I guess, um, and. You know, what's what's been interesting, and in fact, actually, on that very first video that I recorded, I talked about depression, anxiety um, and and stress, but I didn't talk about the alcoholism, and and my wife was particularly sensitive to that, And and that sort of made sense to me because, of course, what I've since learned is that actually, while stigma around certain mental health issues is still significant in certain countries, in certain cultures, in certain organizations, it's not nearly as significant as the stigma against addiction. And um, and so, whilst an increasing number of people are willing to talk about uh, depression and other forms of mental health issues, not so many people have been willing to talk about um, addiction.
1: That's fascinating because, you know, the ABA-Hazelton study did show both uh, a strong correlation between mental illness and mental health issues and addiction and I had kind of taken a view where I thought that was an an, it's early I thought that was an addiction centric report in some ways Mm -hmm. and actually didn't didn't hone in nearly enough on uh, well didn't hone in as much as I would have hoped on mental health so you you kind of have a 360 view of this in terms of the stigma and i think that's just fascinating i don't i'm just it's just interesting to me that it was um your experience that the addiction component was more stigmatizing than the mental health component
0: yeah yeah and, look, and I'm up you know i'm very very clear about that i've been very fortunate so and i'll go back and tell you more about my story in in a bit but just as a as a, an important aside i Um, About two years ago um, I went on the board of something called MQ Mental Health Research which is the leading mental health research charity in the UK and um, and through that I've learned a lot about the research and um, some of the underlying issues around mental health which has been Fascinating and helpful for me in terms of my own understanding, but also being able to share with other people and and through MQ. I met a very eminent professor called um, Graham Thornycroft so he's Professor Sir Graham Thornycroft and he is one of the world's experts on stigma and he was saying that um, stigma around mental health issues and, and of course it varies depending on what the issue is you know, there's a difference between depression and schizophrenia, for example, but that um, addiction, the stigma is much higher. And part of the reason for that is because mental health issues are regarded as things that happen to you. Whereas many people in society uh, and societies and cultures around the world regard addiction as as a choice you make. And of course, yeah, many of us, um you know my my addiction was so closely related to self-medicating my anxiety and stress that it it didn't feel like a choice It, it just felt something that i had to do and um my wife had a an amusing phrase that she coined i don't think she meant it to be a pun but she she basically said look so when you do that first video she said please you know talk about you could if you you know if you really feel ready and able to talk about your depression and anxiety please don't talk about the alcoholism and the addiction and what he said was um you know once it's out of the once the cork's out of the bottle you won't be able to put it back <laughs> in again which well I, that was a very
1: very very well-placed Okay,
0: well, fine. <laughs> yes, yeah. so I don't think she she meant it that way, but but it was perfect, and it's something I've always remembered. Uh, and And I didn't at that stage, but i it became clear to me later that it was such a central part of my story that for me to talk about my challenges without talking about addiction was really only telling half the story. Um, so So that was something that that I was very keen to do. And just to finish off on the, on the Graham Thornercrofter side, what he said was that the best way to reduce stigma, whether it's for mental health issues or addiction, was for people who have not suffered those conditions to be exposed to people who have and are currently in a good place. So what you are doing through this podcast is introducing the world to people who've suffered from various conditions who are currently in a better place than they were. And that's the most effective way of of reducing stigma. Uh, And and Graham actually went a step further. And what he said was that what is the most effective, even more effective than, than generically hearing from people but is hearing from people within your own organization. Because in your own organization, you stop thinking about what are the differences, what mean, what enables this person to come, come out, if you like, as opposed to, so this person works for Major Lindsay in Africa or Herbert Smith Freehills or whatever other organization it might be, and there they are standing up in front of me telling their story or telling their story via a Podcast or whatever it might be and they're currently in a good place and that has a very very powerful effect On reducing stigma.
1: I think you've made a point that really is Powerful, which is it's important to share stories to erase stigma, but it's important to share stories with your cohorts in particular because They are, in in our profession, they are often the people who are most worried about being viewed as weak or unable to execute their jobs or being judged as not good enough. When they can hear the story from someone who has matriculated through the firm for three decades, um, risen to some position of authority, and um, is able to share that, I think it is... It is an enormous groundbreaker. I think what you're doing is is so valuable because it's it sets a tone for younger lawyers that they can um, they can they can man, they can address these issues with some comfort that it's been done before and and done before by someone who has been successful and established at the
0: firm. So I think that's
1: phenomenal. So let's hear more about your story.
0: OK, well, look, I guess, you know, you, you've had a number of fantastic guests on that that um, that have shared a lot of it. So I'll be I'll be reasonably brief. I mean, it just it was a story. I mean, it, in a way it was, I think it's a story that unquestionably goes back to my childhood because and and the other thing I've learned from um, my time at MQ Mental Health and and it, so whilst it's a UK charity, we fund research from International researchers all over the world. So this is very much a sort of an international research organisation. And one of the things that I've learned is that 75% of us who go on to struggle with mental health issues, the seeds are sown before you're 18, and therefore uh, childhood experiences are um, extremely important and relevant to you know how you're going to grow up, how you're going to be. Um, how you're going to cope with relationships uh, and stability and deal with issues of resilience and anxiety uh, when you're older. And and, and so that would certainly be true of me. I had a very difficult relationship with my dad. In particular, my dad, so he married my mum really young, they were both 18. Um, And, you know, my dad, and, and of course you learn these things much later, but he, in turn, had a very difficult relationship with his dad and, and of course, it's often the case that, that history repeats itself. And he, um, he passed away um, not so long ago, um, uh, but, but, you know, from the moment he met my mum to the moment he passed away, you know, he was very, very much in love with my mum and that, for him, was the critical relationship. And so when I came along as the um, first of three children, and the only boy, uh, and the oldest, um, I became, I guess at best, uh, an irritant, and at worst, sort of public enemy number one, because I took some of the emotional uh, and uh, energy away from him and and towards me, And, and as a consequence, He he struggled with being a dad, and in particular he struggled with being a dad to uh, a boy. And so he was often um, uh, in a very, very bad mood. Mornings were awful, and I used to really spend my time keeping away from him. Uh, And um, I guess the only positive that came out of it, or it felt like the only positive, was that I turned into a bit of a swot because I spent pretty much all of my time in my bedroom um, reading, listening to some music, uh, doing schoolwork um, and of course I did that to keep out of his way because I was, I was terrified of him, um, genuinely terrified of him. I had one recurring uh, daydream which was that when I was big enough and old enough I would beat him to death. That's how that kept me going because I, I lived in this extraordinary fear of him. And the issue, of course, was that I then took that worldview. So my worldview was really a a view of that people were, you needed to be very careful with people, that people could be very difficult, that people could be very frightening, that the world was a difficult and angst-producing place. And, And I took that worldview to school, university, and uh, ultimately to work. And and so I was uh, an individual. I became a young lawyer who was um, full of stress and anxiety.
1: It's really fascinating to me how long those types of experiences as a child reverberate. I think of when you're a kid and you throw a, a flat piece of Rock on the pool, and it skips, and you see the ripples. And it, it, to me, you know, experiences like that, you never really fully appreciate just how long they ripple. Mm. I mean, they ripple deep into adulthood. I think one other point that I, I think is worth mentioning, and I, I've I've done so much reading lately, is that there are a lot of folks who have mental illness that is a biological disease. Mm. I don't like to talk about bipolar disease or schizophrenia, but the diagnostic tools and diagnostic awareness, if you will, for kids that grew up 10, 15, 20 years ago to recognize those problems, were not nearly as evolved as they are today. So it created kind of a vicious circle. The behavior of, of, of a youngster, young person um, was considered off or not right. And, and the relationship with the family wasn't right because they couldn't calibrate the relationship and the behavior. and, 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 and a, a big part of it had to do with no one knew what was wrong. And so even diagnostically and clinically for people who had biological disease, they often had very similar relationships with their parents because there was no explanation for their behavior.
0: Yeah, yeah, no I get that and and I guess I I give give you a very concrete example of that. Um, So my, um, so I've got four kids, three boys uh, and a much younger daughter and the middle of the three boys um, was always uh, incredibly challenging to parent, Um, so much so that you know (laughs) my wife and I would be in despair sometimes and of course his life was rubbish as well, because if we were in despair, of course, he wasn't in a great place. And, you know, so he didn't um, have um, a strong sense of self-worth because his mum and dad were always shouting at him or he was being shouted at at school and all the rest of it. And um, uh, he had one brilliant teacher who said to Deb and I, when he was about, I think, about eight, something like that, and she said, I've never seen a clearer example of somebody with ADHD. We didn't even know what ADHD meant then. And, um, and, and suddenly we then, you know, had a full proper diagnosis. Um, I know Ritalin has had a bad press and my view is, is that it's partly had a bad press because it's been prescribed uh, sometimes to kids who are just difficult as opposed to s- kids who have actually got ADHD and 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 so for our son, his life was transformed once he had um Ritalin. and you know he he got to a stage um around 20 where he no longer needs it. Um, but it just meant that we partly we could parent him differently uh, and and the difference that taking Ritalin did to his ability to concentrate when doing his homework, etc, was just. Miraculous, and so no. the 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 importance of understanding underlying issues is is critical. Um, I, I absolutely get that.
1: So you've um you obviously had a very tough beginning, and it and it carried over. What this what I'll call sort of the the inherent skittishness of growing up in fear, um, which causes a lot of self-generating internal anxiety it like fuels a power plant of anxiety mm-hmm. and and for you it also you know led to self-medication how did you begin to crawl your way out of that
0: mm. well the, the answer is a uh, pretty badly actually mark you know i'd like to say that i you know i was rational about it that i was um, I sat down and thought, you know, I'm not feeling right. You know, I, I need to get help. None of that happened. I did the classic thing that I fear many people did. Certainly, when nobody talked about mental health issues, is you know, I, 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 the last thing I wanted it to be was a mental health issue because, of course, law, like many jobs, is is a job that is a, is a job of the mind, if you like. And and what I was terrified was that there was something wrong with my mind. And so I was pretty much prepared to um, carry on self-medicating with alcohol and carry on working 14, 16 hour days, seven days a week just to try and keep a lid on it. And and so I sort of um, so I'd love to tell you that I that I w- was rational and sensible about it, but I wasn't. And actually, in the end, my body had the final word and my body had the final word because what happened was, is that I used to go down to our uh, local gym opposite our office in in, uh, in London. Uh, and um, I used to go down there most evenings before going back up to the office to carry on working until super late. And one day, it was in May 1996, I went down and I collapsed. And my body just was saying to me, Chris, you know, we're done. We can't. You know physically uh, this is my body talking now I can't work any longer I can't do any more exercise I can't drink any more alcohol I can't continue functioning in this way carrying this burden of stress and anxiety so I collapsed I was rushed to hospital I had every single test imaginable done at the end of the week the Um, slightly too jolly consultant came up to me and said Mr. Parsons good to see you I've got some excellent news there's nothing wrong with you and of course that was like the worst news in the world because I wanted something rare and exotic that I could tell myself my family my friends my work this is what I'm suffering from Um, this is why I'm like I am and now that I know what the problem is I can get it fixed but of course, with nothing being wrong, it only left a mental health issue and um, and then actually things spiraled even further because my, I, I thought that I was never going to work again, I was never going to be able to support my wife and kids, I was never going to be able to look friends and colleagues in the eye again and say, look, you know, I'm not up to this, I can't do this, I'm a failure. Um, all of those things came flooding through me, and my stress and anxiety turned into a full-blown depression. and um, and and really, it was only at that stage that um, that I could start to recover. And I did that in two ways. One, through medication, there's no question whatsoever that um, antidepressants saved my life. Um, I couldn't. So I, uh, people ask me, you know, was I suicidal at that time? And the answer I think was that I was too sick to think about suicide. I was too just beaten down. I couldn't didn't have
1: enough anything. energy. I didn't have enough, have enough, enough energy. energy.
0: I didn't have enough anything to think about suicide. And of course, the, 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 the horrible thing about suicide is, is that often people who, um, when they start getting better, um, and they start feeling stronger that that's when there's a greater risk um, But I so but I put what I was very clear about was that I couldn't imagine Living as I was I, it was inconceivable that I could carry on as I was because my life was just So thoroughly miserable as to be unbelievable And so I had medication and I'm still on medication to this day. I've had one or two breaks from it Uh, And the last break was about five years ago and my wife, bless her, said, I'm not sure I would come off. And I said, no, I'm feeling great. Uh, I love my job. I'm happy at home. You know, this is the time for me to stop taking medication. It takes three months to get out of the system. Three months later, I had depression and I had to start again. And so for me, there's, you know, whether biologically or through sort of long-term Damage, if you like, through stress and anxiety, um, I need uh, something that helps the production of serotonin in my brain, which doctors think affects mood. And,
1: uh, go on. I think you've made a really important point, and, and um, it's a story that is repeated over and over and over again. It's like people who begin to feel better and they stop taking their antibiotic. You know, I think one message out there because medicine has become stigmatized Mm -hmm. and is um, for some people, many people, a, a long term modality for controlling either biological disease or a disposition towards depression is that. If there's a takeaway, just because you start feeling better, unless your clinician tells you, you should wean off of it, you shouldn't make that decision yourself. It never goes well.
0: Yeah and and in fact but he, you know I did this with you know I went to see the doctor and I said I'd like to try and the doctor was supportive so it wasn't that I sort of um you know took 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 medicine into my own hands you know I I thought I was in a good place and 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 so my doctor was very supportive of at least trying but at least saying to me look Chris um you know the th- th- this you know, you may need to take it long-term. So please don't get super upset if you start feeling unwell again. So, you know, I'd at least had that warning. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and so I, I did come off it under guidance, uh, slowly and carefully, um, but, but for whatever reason, uh, as you said, you know, I'm one of those people who will need to take it for the rest of my life. And I'm completely cool about that.
1: And I think that you've you you you've said something really important. The marginal side effects you might have from the medication are far less severe than the major side effects of not being medicated.
0: So what happened when I first shared my story was that the feedback was, I guess, twofold. One was... Um, People were very grateful that I'd shared it. They found it very helpful. They found it important that people could be vulnerable at a senior level. All of those things were incredibly positive. The less positive comments, and I was pleased that people shared this with me, was that, look, Chris, maybe it's okay for you because you've been around a long time. You've won the trust of the organization. You proved at a younger age you were able to do the job, and therefore people were willing to... Uh, back you in trying to move beyond your challenges and and be able to continue with the firm but wouldn't it be very different for people in business services or uh, PAs or more junior associates or any associates or trainees within the organization surely it would be much more difficult for them to come out and tell their story and so for me what was significant about, I guess, a year ago, maybe a little bit longer now, was that when we, so each year we've, we've done this, this is me video piece. And um, to begin with, it was just um, a couple of partners and, and actually, in, in fairness, one PA also told her story, obviously a very brave PA, which was wonderful. Um, But now, today, if I were to go on to our intranet, I would be able to find trainees, um, junior associates, mid-ranking associates, senior associates. I'm aware of a partner that has been promoted with a history of depression and things. So for me, the real test of whether an organization has genuinely been able to persuade its its um, employees both senior and junior and in the middle that this is a safe place in which to tell their story and that that it will genuinely not impact their career um i've seen evidence of that and and that's what i would love to see um more broadly within organizations the other thing that i think is important and again, it's something that I found is is that there are some organizations, and um, and frankly, you know my organization is also capable of being guilty with this as well, which is that um, we we, they talk a good message, and videos go out, and there's lots of support on the internet and um there's lots of advice and and all of that stuff but sometimes you've got to to dig a little bit under the surface and scratch a little bit and what's been interesting is as i've gone around our organization and i've gone around other organizations that people will then come and talk to me privately um, and say that the lived experience is not consistent with the firm-wide messaging. And, and in a way, I guess, Mark, that's not surprising because we've had to deal with years of, um, of stigma, years of behaving in a different way, uh, of a culture of, you know, this is how we do things around here. You know, if, you, if you're gonna survive, you need to be tough, you need to be able to sleep four hours a night, you need to be able to, you know, j- just be, you know, a, a, a tough guy or gal in the M&A team, in the disputes team, in the finance team, whatever it might be. Um, and yeah, I know the firm says that mental well-being is all really important, but this is what I need from my team in this job. And if you want to be part of my team, this is the sort of person that I need and want. And so I... You know very um almost heartbreakingly have spent time with privately with with associates and particularly junior associates crying saying look chris um we need to do better because um it's great that you're talking about the importance of this and how um, how um how the firm is treating it um but but we need to make sure that individual behaviors reflect those values that we say are so important to us
1: and we've had uh we've had an interesting amount of discussion with some of our guests around that um that that creating the programs as an investment that firms feel necessary but that they're in in some of this frankly some of the guests have expressed a view that there's some demographics that that make it hard because there's partners Leaders of a certain generation and gender that um, until they go away and a new generation comes in that things will not really fully evolve and, and we don't have data to support that. But it is a recurrent theme that, that you know, we, we have a new age model and we don't necessarily have new age leaders. So that shift in, I think, execution at the firms from a leadership perspective. It's there's a lot of things to decode for for people who grew up in that system and it's, it's much like doctors who grew up, you know, as residents working, you know, 48 hours straight, you know. Now we understand you can't work someone 48 hours straight and expect them to make good life saving decisions. You know, it's sort of that um, I went through it. You should go through it. And it's, I think that's going to take a long while to resolve
0: it is and of course you know there are people juniors in the teams of those partners now and I don't think actually it is necessarily a gender thing <laughs> I've seen plenty of, of of, female partners who are every bit if not tougher than some of the, the, the senior male ones um, but I, I um, and of course there are people growing up in those teams today who are being taught that this is the right way to build a team and to run a, a successful practice um, and, and so it really will take a long time, because not only do we need to wait for a certain generation to be leaving the practice, we also then need to re-educate and re-encourage and, and, and talk about other ways of, 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 um, of behaving within a work environment that is, um, is, is more acceptable and, and more appropriate in terms of you know, us all looking after each other.
1: Yeah, and it you know when you think about it, legal in law, we've we've glamorized the adversative environment. Yeah, that you have to go through to be successful. I mean, you know the the book One L, which was written years and years ago, about um you know the rigors of a first year law student at Harvard, and they even made a TV story. I think John Houseman was the was the curmudgeonly professor. Um, it sort of glamorized the whole thing and, you know, most law students can tell a story of when their first few weeks in law school, they were called on by a teacher and grilled in the Socratic method and just beaten because they didn't have command. I mean, that adversity culture, the Vince Lombardi culture of, of, of legal training, you know, that's a lot of historic baggage to shed and it is going to take time. Yeah, Yeah,
0: there's no question about that. So Chris, we're we're
1: nearing the end of our time together. Can you can you share some? And, and I know people are hesitant to do this because none of us want to be pundits and pretend we're experts. But can you share some of the things you do to manage your stress and anxiety? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, look, I'll, I'll happily do that. Um, so in no particular order, I try and think of things. I um, I try and exercise every day. So for for the moment at least, uh, my only drug is um, endorphins, uh, and 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 some caffeine, um, but uh, nothing else, which is cool. Um, if I you do
1: that. I'm showing you the coffee pot that's keeping me awake. It's just, well, it's super. Interview. interview.
0: You certainly you certainly deserve that. Um, I take sleep very seriously. And I encourage everybody to read the wonderful um, Matthew Walker, Professor Matthew Walker's book on why we sleep, which I think is just extraordinary. And if people haven't read that, please, please do. Uh, it's just amazing. And you'll never think of sleep in the same way again. So, sleep is absolutely vital for a whole raft of reasons, including for our mental well being. So, I try. And i know this is tough for lawyers but look we can all do things that are super important for us uh, i try and get eight hours sleep a night or, or certainly between seven and eight hours sleep a night so that's very important um uh, in my deepest despair uh, i did find faith i found a christian faith and and so that is an important part of my well-being uh, and i pray each morning and each evening um, I am a. I'm not really meant to talk about this too much, but I'll mention it very briefly. I'm a very, very happy member of AA, and the AA program and its twelve steps are uh, and Im- continue to be an ongoing importance, not just to keep me safe from alcohol on a daily basis, but also as a sort of way of living and an approach to life. So, so that's a, the 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 whole. A twelve-step program is really important,
1: and I think um, that that, str- that really is there's a bigger theme there, which is finding a community, whether it's AA, whether it's a mental health support group, whether it's an informal group of of, of people who are sharing experiences, but 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 having a having an ecosystem where you can talk about these issues without shame or fear of being judged. I think that if people can find that, it can be a very essential um, component of their, of their recovery and stabilization.
0: I, I couldn't agree more, Mark. And, and interestingly, and perhaps i I'd just finish with this, uh, unless you've got any other questions, I, I watched a wonderful TED talk recently, which is the, you may have seen it, but it's the, it's the long-term study. Uh, that's been undertaken on on happiness Uh, and it's been running I think now for 75 years and they've been tracking the same individuals periodically over 75 years to try and establish what's important to them what makes them happy what makes them content all of those sorts of things and um, and they compared it with the views of millennials of what millennials thought would be important and what millennials thought would be important and I'm sure I would have said exactly the same thing when I was young what they thought would be important would be fame and money and ideally both whereas what this um, 75-year study it's the longest study ever done into happiness and, it, and it's it's—it's—it's uh, um, it's a 15-minute TED talk it's fantastic uh, it's called uh, the study happiness or the longest study on happiness and what that found was that the most important thing to these individuals over their lifetime was community. Community, friendship and family and um, and you know that's a reminder of how we as human beings are wired and you know whether we have mental health issues, whether we have addiction issues, whether we have just living issues Um, What's important to us are those things, namely uh, community, uh, friendship and family. And so that was a a, a helpful reminder and and I would encourage all your listeners to watch that wonderful TED Talk if they haven't yet done so.
1: I think um, as we bring this to an end, that gives us a chance to do a little public service announcement. I was uh, watching an interview with Senator Kamala Harris. Deadline White House yesterday and at the end of the interview, she asked Nicole Wallace if she could say one more thing and Nicole said sure And she said just remember social distancing does not mean emotional distancing And I know for I'm currently um, I'm currently sequestered by myself But I found out that I, I have had more virtual coffee and made more effort to reconnect with people and I think that that's you know right now we're in a very bizarre time. And I'll just remind people that the telephone actually transmits the voice. You can see people like you and I are seeing people, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. Um, you and your study, me and my um, me in my kitchen. Um, and 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 I think during this time more than ever community is important and you can cultivate community even when you can't physically touch your community community members and I think that's a great message for us perhaps to end on is stay connected now more than ever stay connected especially if you suffer from these issues it's important that you not retreat into yourself
0: yeah well look well said mark and I in fact I I share a monthly update with our India sort of wider India group throughout the firm and I shared with people um, a number of the things that I've learned living a slightly sort of strange peripatetic life and and often you know I am on my own but 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 that doesn't mean I don't connect with people regularly and in fact of course that's exactly what I should be doing through my job and so I shared um, a number of those lessons that I'd learned um, over 15 years and and the central theme of that was the importance of connection and making sure you you get in touch with people making sure you help people with technology you know i um this is my first webex uh call uh, i've not done that before and luckily i was able to click on the link and it all seemed to work out and things but look you know i i joined my first aa zoom meeting uh and needed to be helped with that and and so i think it's incumbent upon all of us to not only to reach out to people, but also to help people with the technology that enables us to keep in touch with each other at the moment.
1: Chris, thank you very much. You've been a great guest. Um, for, for the listeners, this, I've been talking to Chris Parsons, Chairman of the India Practice at Herbert Smith Freehills, and a mental health champion and a truth teller. This has been a fabulous conversation. I have to say, I feel like I've known you for years. Um, adore you. You're a great guy. I just love the fact that this podcast allows me to meet people like you and to have these conversations. (laughs) conversations. You've been so generous with your time and your story, and I'm really grateful, and I'm really glad we had a chance. You're worth getting up to talk to at five in the morning.
0: Thank you, Mark. Well, look, it's been a real pleasure. And I feel I know you a lot better as well. So good to talk to you and, and keep keep up this fantastic work that you're doing on the podcasts.
1: Well, thank you very much and have a great rest of your day.
0: Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.